Episode 1, EB5 superhero Charles Foster, partner and founder of Foster Global. You're listening to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. Join host Matt Trash as he interviews the EB5 industry's courageous men and women, leaders protecting the path to the American dream for the good guys and foiling the sinister plots of the not-so-good guys. Billions of dollars and families' lives are at stake. Go behind the scenes as our EB5 superheroes tell their stories of triumph against adversity, paving a brighter future for EB5. And now, financial engineer, industry expert, and EB5 superhero, Matt Trush. Welcome to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. I'm Matt Trush, your host. For those of us living in the EB5 world, we've grown thick skin and learned to buckle up tight for the roller coaster ride we lovingly call EB5. EB-5 is an incredible federal program that has brought tens of billions of dollars to the U.S. economy, created hundreds of thousands of new jobs, and helped countless families legally immigrate to the U.S. But it's been a bumpy ride, to say the least. There have been cases of fraud, swinging pendulums of regulatory uncertainty, unnecessarily long processing times, program sunsets, and even twilight. But there's a light at the end of the tunnel. EB-5 can once again become the best and fastest and most stable letter combinations in the alphabet of U.S. immigration paths. EB-5 can regain its highly competitive position versus other countries' immigration investment programs. EB-5 is poised to navigate America out of another economic downturn. Now is the time, more than ever, for the good guys and good gals to make the dream a reality again for those who believe in EB-5 and the American dream. Meet the EB-5 superheroes who are on the front lines of making positive change, the courageous leaders who are shaping the course of EB-5 for good and triumphing against adversity. Get the inside scoop, hear their stories, learn from real-life successes and failures. Billions of dollars in families' lives are at stake. Join me in welcoming our first EB-5 superhero, Charles Foster, founder and partner at Foster Global. really exciting to have you as our first EB-5 superhero to launch the kickoff of the EB-5 superhero show. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, when I thought of launching the EB-5 superheroes podcast, you were the first name that came to mind. EB-5 superheroes celebrates industry leaders like yourself who are protecting the past of the American dream for the good guys and preventing willful misconduct perpetrated by the not so good guys. Charles, you're really the gold standard of immigration lawyers in the U.S., decades in the industry advising presidents and helping countless legal immigrants come to the U.S. I also have to thank you, Charles, since you're really the one who got me into the EB-5 industry some years ago, and you've been a real mentor and friend, so I'd like to thank you for that personally too. Charles, for our listeners, since I don't think I can do your resume justice, please tell us a little bit about yourself, your firm, and how long you've been practicing immigration law, and some notable positions and honors that you have held and currently hold. Well, first, Matt, thank you for those very generous and kind words, and I'm honored to be on this initial podcast with you. Whether I'm a superhero or not is open to uh, debate. You'd have to ask my wife about that. (laughs) In terms of my background, background uh, in terms of, of experience, it goes back quite a ways. I, I uh, Early on in my career, I thought I wanted to be an international lawyer, but when I thought about it, it was because I was interested in cross-border issues because I grew up in McAllen, Texas, South Texas, and uh, that was a great interest. So early on, when I established my own law firm, I I decided I would do everything that touched on immigration. And I've been very involved, as you said. I started with a uh, uh, half of one employee down uh, our law firm, which which by coincidence has my name, Foster LLP. We have 140 employees. uh, And we have, uh, pertinent to this conversation, we have a a relatively large EB-5 practice group. So with respect to my background, as you indicated, I have been very fortunate 
uh, in so many ways that I've taken uh, the experience I've had and interest I've had in immigration, and I've worked on policy a great deal. I, I was a senior policy advisor to President George W. Bush. I was a policy advisor to President Barack Obama. I was a policy advisor to at least three would-be presidents, in the, uh, meaning that they thought they would be, and I thought they would be president, but uh, uh, it didn't turn out uh, that way at all. Uh, I've been involved in the immigration bar, uh, uh, past national president of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. I established the board certification standards in Texas in the field of immigration and nationality law, and I established the uh, state, state bar committee on immigration and nationality law. With respect to EB-5, as you indicated, I've been very involved. I've been Passed by USA, been recognized uh, regularly by EB5 Investor Magazine as one of the top EB5 lawyers and so forth. So I could go on, but I'll stop right here. Well, thank you. You are definitely an EB5 superhero. So tell us a little about, bit about it since you've been there from the outset of the program, you've been involved in it since its inception. Can you remember a little bit about what EB5 was like in the beginning? And then tell us a little bit about how it's evolved along the years. Okay, well, I'm reflecting, I have a couple of thoughts. I give a lot of talks on immigration sometimes weekly to different groups, uh, very large conferences to local rotary clubs. Just about anyone that'll ask me to, uh, I'll show up and, and give a talk. I enjoy that. And I used to have a standard line in my speeches about how complex and restrictive our immigration system was. And I would use a foreign national that everyone knew something about her work history and her relatives. And I asked the question, could uh, Queen Elizabeth legally immigrate to the United States? And everyone would laugh and, and they would say in so many words, of course she could. And I would go through our legal system, our preference system that was first established in, uh, by President Lyndon Johnson in, in the 65 Immigration Act, where most numbers are allocated uh, based on uh, preferences based upon family reunification. You have to have a close um, uh, relationship with a U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident, or through job skills where you can prove the shortage there are no qualified U.S. workers, or through political asylum. And if you looked at that, uh, and I would joke about uh, whether or not she, the queen had appropriate uh, job skills in case she wanted to legally immigrate uh, or whether she would be fleeing Prince Charles and seeking asylum. The truth is she didn't have much of a chance to legally immigrate or she didn't want to. But I made that point. Uh, I had to drop that in 1990 because I think most people miss the significance of the EB-5 program. There's a lot of people all over the world sitting in Beijing or Istanbul or Buenos Aires who would love to immigrate, but they just don't happen to have a close uh, family relationship. They do not have, even if they have great job skills, if they're, if they're sitting in uh, Paris or Lagos or wherever, they do not have their relationship with a would-be employer willing to sponsor them sight unseen. So as a practical matter for many people, the only way to legally immigrate is through the EB-5 program. That's point number one. Point number two, I, I was there at the inception in 1990. I, I worked with uh, Texas Congressman, legendary, uh, who I got to know, uh, Jack Brooks, who was chairman of the uh, House Judici Judiciary Committee, as well as Al Simpson, a Republican from uh, Wyoming, who was chairman of the Senate Immigration Subcommittee 
of the Judiciary Committee. I got to be friends with both of them, worked with them on that. And I, in fact, I still have the correspondence. And the only reason I mentioned that is other than to uh, tell you I was involved since the beginning. I have uh, corresponded with them a great deal, and I still have that correspondence. And it's very significant because they talk about 10,000 investors and they talk about a dollar amount based upon what uh, an annual dollar amount that's possible based upon what would have 10,000 investors invest uh, invested. And that's going to be relevant to our conversation because it turned out we never got 10,000 visa numbers because the State Department started counting derivatives, the, the immediate family members, spouse and children, against that 10,000. And they did it at a time, frankly, that people like myself really didn't care because what was characterized initially by the EB-5 program was, I used to use this expression, we gave a party, we opened this up to investors and no one came. And the numbers were so small initially, who cared if they counted? I think in the first year, there was something like a, a less than 100 uh, petitions filed. So who cared? But that came because we didn't care. That came back years later to haunt us when we really needed those numbers. So it sounds like you kept those correspondences. It sounds like at least to, to demonstrate evidence that really the program founders expected not to be just counting derivatives, but rather to be counting uh, investors at the 10,000 mark. Is that really the um, the thought process behind you keeping those uh, letters? Well, uh, yes. Well, I just typically, uh, I kept them, frankly, just because I just put them in a file and never thought about it. But years later, I dug them out and I, I was frankly... I couldn't remember, obviously, the detail, but I was pleasantly surprised that they made such specific references to the total dollar uh, number of investors on an annual basis and dollars that it could raise. Uh, and so this gets into the question of what we call legislative intent. So this issue has been uh, it, uh, has come to the uh, has come up in a number of occasions uh, now uh, because it's very pertinent and uh, in terms of uh, both litigation and in terms of lobbying Congress, trying to restore uh, a full 10,000 uh, uh, numbers for a full 10,000 investors. So I have shared that uh, my uh, uh, correspondence with uh, any and all pertinent parties that, uh, that, that could help on this issue. I mean, the expectation is if we were to be counting investors instead of uh, just derivatives, we might have 10,000 real investors instead of 3,000 or 3,300. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that, that, that's exactly correct. That would be huge because, unfortunately, uh, whenever we have success in developing a market, the best example, of course, would be China. At some point, given the fact that we also have a 7% cap, meaning that no one country can use more than 7% of the quota, unless it's going unused by other countries. The, the actual numbers for any given country, or uh, you, you do the math, 7% of, of uh, the average petitioner has a spouse and at least one child. Some have no children, but others have two. So so we, we have effectively around 3,300 a year. So uh, do the math, 7% of that, so that the it does not take long to have a backlog under the quota wherever you develop a market. And, you know, if that backlog is not uh, significant, if it's a year, two, three, even, uh, the market can tolerate that. But it got so bad in China, once it hit 10, with a given wisdom, it came, the backlog in, uh, was at least 10 plus year, it really killed the, uh, the EB-5 uh, program in China uh, when individuals understood well, they wanted to immigrate, they had, a, they had a kid that they wanted to get into Harvard and they thought it'd be great if he was a permanent resident. Uh, it killed the program because it, it was a big disincentive uh, when 
when they learned there was going to be such a long program. So then you, the market moves to other countries. And if you have success, at some point, it's going to be inevitable that that country too, the more success you have, the greater uh, the, you're going to have a, a, a real prospect of growing backlogs that will kill that market as well. So what you're describing really is that the, the program is um, kind of uh, penalizing success that the, the countries that are signing up for the program, ultimately it will be to their demise to some extent. Those that where the marketing efforts and the actual, those who take a liking to this program over time are ultimately going to lose that opportunity um, relative to other countries. Is that what you're describing? Yes, and that's uh, that's both a, a certainly a big minus, it's a big plus because I always tell people when they when they express any reservation, they say, what will happen if A, B, and C? And I say, look, there's one thing you can control and it's very elementary. The sooner you start, the sooner you finish. If you're worried about any of these issues, make a decision, file a, 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 a rational decision, and file your petition as soon as you can. You can't control what Congress is going to uh, do. You can't control what the U, how the U.S. court system may interpret this. But one thing you can do is control when you get into that imaginary line, and if you do it, sooner than the next guy, then your waiting period is going to be less. Right. So, but let's look at the other side. If it were in fact 10,000 investors and let's say 33,000 um, derivatives or total um, Americans coming in through the program, would that be a big number relative to the total number of uh, legal residents or legal immigrants um, who come to the country yearly? No, not at all, which I think is a valid uh, point that we have annually it averages roughly about a million a year. Wow. Rough numbers. Uh, I would say uh, through under our preference system, about uh, a, a good, you know, 50, 55 percent uh, come under our preference system. But we have individuals, immediate family members of U.S. citizens. That would be a spouse of a U.S. citizen, a minor child of a U.S. citizen, and a parent of a U.S. citizen. That's exempt from our preference system. So when you throw them in, it averages about a million a year. So you can see that uh, 10,000 in, uh, investors with their family members is, is a relatively small part of that. So one could say, if you were starting over again, you could say uh, that the uh, investor program is a win-win for the U.S. It doesn't cost us anything, and we bring a, a needed capital to projects if it's structured properly that might not otherwise get off the ground. And by uh, uh, definition, under the legislation, each investor has to create uh, 10 direct jobs for U.S. workers. And of course, if you use a reasonable center, then you can count indirect jobs as well under certain conditions. At some point, Congress may sit down and start redividing those numbers. And if we have a seat at the table, someone might say, well, let's, let's, uh, let's don't be stuck with 10,000 and how we interpret that. If we want to really resolve that issue, let's make uh, and count derivatives and let's, let's make set quote at 30,000. There's a variety of ways that that can be done. And I think most rational people will say, uh, this is good for America. There's no downside. You can't say, uh, we're going to have too many people investing money, creating jobs for U.S. workers. Uh, uh, that doesn't uh, that doesn't make sense. Right. The program has brought forty billion dollars so far, and conceivably, if it had its if it had gone to ten thousand investors, could have brought three times that. You know, it seems to be a successful program in terms of uh, bringing investment and jobs to to this country. If we're stuck on the semantics of saying ten thousand um, investors, let's call it. 
30,000 investors and then just roll in the derivatives. Anyway, you cut it. It's a good program. It seems to be working well for the US economy. Why are we trying to uh, limit something which is good? Why are we penalizing success? Yeah, one of the reasons is the so-called Jeff Sessions rule. And uh, Jeff Sessions, as uh, some of you may remember, was was a U.S. senator from the state of Alabama, uh, had a big voice on the Judiciary Committee. And uh, he always had a big voice, uh, I would have to say a negative voice. And it was that any increase in any one caption, had, you could not have a total increase in the quota. So he would say, sure, increase the uh, the number of invest uh, visa numbers for investors, but you've got to take it out of somebody else. You've got to take it from a family uh, preferences or employment preferences. And the problem with that is, as soon as you tried to do that, there would be tremendous lobbying on behalf of different organizations saying, no, 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 family immigration, we cannot cut family immigration. That's more, uh, that's what we call family reunification. That's what we, you call it if you're, you're pro-immigration, family reunification. And the restriction is called that chain immigration, and they, they actually just start with that what, what's included. So the problem with, in trying to, as long as we have, as long as you start with the premise that we're stuck with the current numbers and to increase the 10,000, it's got to come from someone else. Every preference category have, has their own support group, and so that becomes almost... Uh, impossible from a political point of view. Right. Once you're working with a zero-sum game, it's very hard to uh, have the other interests uh, go along with that. So, but what has been the the kryptonite to the industry? I mean, we're, we've discussed so far the the really good parts of the industry. You know what it, what it was what it was meant for and what it's actually done and accomplished. What would you describe as sort of the Achilles heel or? The kryptonite. What has been plaguing the industry as you've seen it? Well, uh, number one, uh, uh, the big issue is, always, in my opinion, has always been uh, lack of visa numbers. But there, beyond that, uh, I would say this: the the other big issue is uh, there are two other problems that's hurt the industry. I like to say, in anything, uh, any human endeavor, uh, you could lay out. Just say buying homes real estate development, uh, investing in the stock market. There's always, uh, in every single incident, they are they're bad apples. They're, uh, people uh, uh, get taken advantage of. They make dumb mistakes. Uh, they're bad. Uh, they invest in uh, uh, new companies, and those companies go broke. So, but in the EB-5 area, uh, there have been some projects in which people have invested. I, I, for the most part, what I call mom-and-pop uh, projects that make it very difficult that have uh, blown up because they, they really weren't uh, there, there could have been cons- uh, uh, some corruption there could have been it was just a bad business deal I've noted that the the adverse publicity around that has been uh, over the top to the point that uh, whenever you can find a single project that goes bad it has tainted the entire industry in a way uh, that we know every day uh, people invest in companies that, that go belly up, but that doesn't, no one is saying, no one says, for example, gosh, uh, people invest in a bad company, therefore let's shut down the, the, the uh, stock market. We, we, we're going to shut down the, uh, the stock exchanges. No, no one would, that, that would be so stupid. But every time, and there are many of them, every time there is an EB-5 project, uh, for whatever reason, goes bad, you hear people say, oh, no, this is a terrible program. People get taken advantage of it. It's over the top, exaggerated, out of proportion. 
because the vast, vast majority of the uh, EB-5 investments are are good and people are successful in getting their, their residency. The other Achilles heel, uh, one might say, which I want to get into, is how the program evolved in a way never contemplated by Congress, particularly in post-2008, uh, the, the big recession of 2008, where very large, large financial institutions got in, into the program uh, for the sole purpose of, uh, of being able to attract EB-5 investors in order to replace uh, higher interim uh, bridge financing. So rather than uh, pay uh, bridge financing at 12 or 14 percent, they would use the EB-5 program where investors starting in China were willing to, to accept uh, a rel relatively nominal uh, interest rate. Now, the reason I think that one might say that's the Achilles heel is because those projects would have gone, th those were significant projects. They would have gone about anyway. So it made it much harder to say, oh, uh, the EV pipes creating, uh, supporting projects that would not otherwise get off the ground, creating jobs that would have created because, frankly, I've worked with projects that were very excellent EB-5 uh, uh, projects, but they were complete. The jobs were created. And, uh, and so it was great for the investor because his risk was de minimis. Uh, the investor won uh, because they were able to invest in a very safe project. The, uh, the project developer won because they were able to get a much lower interest rate and increase their profits. But when members of Congress would see that, they would say, no, uh, the program has been distorted, but, uh, particularly people like Chuck Grassley, who's played an oversized role, he, having been uh, chairman, coming from a rural state like Iowa, uh, and being chairman of the, uh, of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, he says this program is, uh, has completely been distorted, and it was supposed to help rural areas, but no one's investing in rural areas. It was supposed to help uh, underserved areas. And that's another, uh, I would say, Achilles heel, that legally speaking, we lawyers were able to qualify just about any project as an underserved area to, to show that it was in a targeted economic area, which, were, again, was great for the investors and for the developers. But there were, uh, I would say, there were people looked at the program and say it just didn't turn out like uh, from a legislative point of view, as we expect. On the one hand, the investor is better off investing in a program that is uh, has a greater um, prospects for success, um, although their, their funds have to be at risk. But on the other hand, uh, they're all, you know, what would really uh, be typically thought of as a targeted employment area. Perhaps these places are being underserved. Now, the new policies uh, as of November of 2019 seem to have resolved some of that but right now we're we're on uh, shaky ground. Where are we today in terms of the EB-5 program, the legislative process, uh, the investment amount, and all of these all of these challenges to the EB-5 program? How do we turn lemons into lemonade? Matt, you're correct. We have gone through uh, this uh, uh, past June uh, one of the most unusual uh, phases, perhaps in the history of the EB-5 program. The EB-5 program, after it was enacted in 1990, signed by uh, another president that I had the opportunity to work for in a different capacity, President George Bush 41, President H.W. Bush, the, the father. 
as I've mentioned earlier, once Congress passed that legislation, they were sort of like giving a party and no one showed up. That allowed for direct investments at a million dollars unless your uh, project was located in a targeted economic area of 500,000. And the reason I know quite well, uh, because I would talk to prospective investors about this program. They were sitting again in Istanbul or in Buenos Aires or, or, or Guadalajara, wherever in the world, Beijing. And I said, all you've got to do, I said, you've got a perfect chance. All you got to do is create a business uh, uh, that's going to create uh, 10 direct U.S. jobs, and we can get you your group. That's great. And they'd say, uh, they'd say, okay, where should I invest? Could you do that for me? And I would joke. I had my standard line. I said, if I knew what were make good investment, I'd go do that for myself. I'm not, I'm not in the business of giving investment advice. You've got to do it. But it'd be like it'd be like me telling you or any of the listeners, uh, all you got to do is make a great investment in Istanbul, and you've never been there. You don't speak Turkish. You wouldn't have the slightest idea of where to start. Well, they didn't either. So, so as a practical matter, the number of people using this program was uh, was just a drop in the bucket. A hundred, hundred and fifty. 1992, we amended the program to allow the accumulation of investments through a regional center. Uh, and, uh, and there were a lot of advantages, including you could count indirect jobs. The, the key to this is it was a pilot program. It always, always, since 1992, had a sunset provision. And we would always get an extension. I would always say this program is popular across both political parties on both sides of the aisle. But it was really sort of a small program and, and Congress not always being uh, doing what they should do, being distracted in so many areas, but sometimes uh, let it expire before they got around to filing for the extension. So that's what happened this time. The, uh, the program, uh, it had been extended like it had been uh, periodically for uh, for longer periods of time, a shorter period of time. This time, the regional center program expired on June 30th. And we were all holding our breath, hoping that there was a vehicle by which that program would be timely extended. Now, you referred to that prior to that, on November uh, 21st, uh, 2019, through regulation, under the Trump administration, they they had the authority to make many changes by regulations to the program. Interestingly, by under the statute, they could change the dollar amount. So for the first time since 1990, they raised the minimum investment amount to one from one million to 1.8 million. Unless you you had invested in a project where the premises were in a targeted economic area. But then they also greatly reduced the ability to uh, uh, to determine that just about any project was in a uh, in a targeted economic area by combining in an imaginative way census tracts. You had to your project had to be in the actual uh, census tract or an immediately adjoining one. So all of a sudden, this program, for the most part after November went from what was effectively a $500,000 program to a $1.8 million. It was a shock to the system. There were very few uh, uh, 900,000 existing projects that could qualify as a TEA within a targeted economic area. So that that had a, uh, there there was a double shock to the program. Uh, In addition to everything, we had the pandemic. So the number of petitions being filed fell off a cliff. 
But interestingly, just as the program was about to expire, a federal judge in California rightly ruled that the regulations published and uh, instituted by the Trump administration had been improperly uh, put into place because the acting executive uh, uh, secretary of, of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, had been improperly appointed. And they found that those regulations were no longer into effect. So we had this incredible window where all of a sudden the uh, we went back from uh, from uh, 1.8 million to back to 500,000 effectively. TEA definitions were, went back into effect, uh, but we had a very short window. So what happened was in that the last uh, two weeks of June 2021, more petitions were being filed in that short period of time than had been filed in over a year. Uh, but now where are we right now? So what happened as of uh, midnight June 30th, the regional center program came to an end. So that leaves us today with people, uh, interestingly, being able to still file an EB-5 petition and qualify by making a direct investment at the $500,000 level. So for some people, this is a golden opportunity because to answer your last question, what will happen? It is a certainty, uh, as certain as anything can be in, in Washington, D.C., that the, uh, that the Biden administration will reissue the uh, regulations in substantially the same form and go through the regular regulatory process, which requires comments. And over a period of months, uh, we will be back uh, uh, under the regulations that we had been prior uh, to uh, November 2019. When will that occur? I would think in the next three, four or five months. That's number one. Now, what about the regional center program? What will happen with that? Well, that takes congressional action. And when will Congress act? It is almost impossible to get, to get the attention of Congress on a program this small. They're, let's face it, they're dealing uh, with uh, big issues like infrastructure, voting rights, and the big, big political uh, divisive issues. So this this uh, this question, uh, it's hard to get the attention. So historically what's happened is the extension of this program has been attached to what I call must-pass legislation. And so the one thing that Congress must do every year is to extend the, uh, to reauthorize the budget. Our fiscal year ends at the end of September. Our fiscal, uh, our fiscal year 2022 starts on October uh, 1 of this year. And Congress must pass a budget or what happens? The government effectively shuts down. Uh, all non-essential people uh, uh, at some point have got to be put on furlough. The national parks shut. Checks are not, uh, you're going to pay uh, federal employees. It's a big mess. So, so at some point, Congress has allowed various shutdowns, but the pressure is so great that normally within days or a week, they will go ahead and pass a budget just because they cannot stand the political pressure. So it's almost certain there will be an effort to attach uh, what we call ornaments to this Christmas tree, and one of which will be an extension of the uh, EB-5 Regional Center Program. Which format that will be, whether it will be just a clean extension or whether it will be a piece of legislation like the uh, Grassley-Leahy bill, we don't know yet. But uh, my personal prediction, which is 
And I, by the way, I have been working on immigration policy virtually daily since uh, 2000. I, I've, I've had that job a couple of times working again, as I've said, for two presidents. So I'm, I'm somewhat reluctant to predict about what anything that Congress may do. Uh, do. But my best bet is uh, to use the expression, uh, the popular phrase, they will kick it down the road. Uh, they will give a short term, something like six months, I would hope a one year extension, just sort of extend the program uh, to buy time. So hopefully uh, there will be time for uh, wiser groups to get together and pass uh, a bigger bill, uh, something like the uh, Chuck Grisley, uh, Patrick Leahy bill that includes a lot of quote, reform in that legislation to protect investors. So, Charles, uh, just so we make sure everybody got this right about what you're what you're saying here, is that the 500,000 and 1 million um, could jump up to back to 900 and 1.8 million within the next three to six months. Yeah. And um, you are expecting that the EB-5 program, regional center program will be reinstituted from around September, October 1 for either six months to one year. And then following that, or in that time period, um, there could be the reforms that everyone's been talking about, the integrity measures, et cetera. But uh, what you're really saying is there's only a three to six month window potentially for this 500 uh, and not $900,000 amount. And um, perhaps just another month or two left before the regional center uh, program is um, reinstituted. Is that correct? Uh, yes, basically. I, I think the uh, takeaway should be for individuals who can make a direct investment, the window be able to do that at $500,000 is relatively short. Three, three to six months, I would say. Okay. And then the regional center program, you feel good um, that there's a high likelihood of it coming back around October 1st. Yes. And, and when I say around October 1st, it could be October the 10th. The Congress has uh, uh, something. They, they've gone for weeks sometimes before being able to vote uh, on a, uh, a, a reauthorization bill, uh, a, a budget bill. Uh, but yes, I feel very confident. Remember, this program has been renewed consistently since 1992. Nobody really opposes it. Uh, the critics call for reform. They do not call for the abolition of the program. Well, that's really um, great news, Charles. I mean, we've all been waiting to hear that since, you know, uh, other than superheroes like yourself, we're all really in the dark as to, um, you know, what could happen to the program. I think it's very um, heartwarming to hear that there are some positive developments in front of us as we ride this roller coaster um, of EB-5. So thank you for that. And so, you know, tell us a little bit about your firm, how we can find you and, and tell us more about your, you and, and your team of EB-5 superheroes. Well, uh, speaking of, of the firm, it's Foster LLP. We're headquartered in Houston, Texas. We have a large office in Austin. We recently opened an office, acquired another law firm, immigration law firm in Dallas. We have an office, smaller office in the Rio Grande Valley. We have offices in, uh, frankly, based on EB-5 in uh, Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, in Beijing, China. We have an office in London, and I'm probably forgetting one somewhere. Mexico. But so we, we have multiple offices. Distinguishes us in terms of Texas is size. The average immigration law firm in Texas would have one or one at uh, perhaps two at most. So we're one of the, we're, we're clearly uh, in terms of uh, Texas based, we're, we're the largest Texas-based immigration law firm. Uh, so size does matter in, in that we can have, we don't, well, I don't think anything wrong with that, that you should be able to do everything in some area like immigration. 
it nevertheless science does allow us to have our attorneys to sub specialize so we so our attorneys have the luxury of focusing just on uh, eb5 uh, uh, issues or uh, uh, e2 uh, uh, we have treaties with countries where you can invest a smaller amount under an e2 provision uh, and so forth or they 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 focus on uh, i9 employment verifications and so forth so uh, so we, by doing that, they have greater expertise and experience in handling all the issues that come up. I like to think we're very uh, service-oriented. I tell our attorneys, you, no matter how bright you are, if you can't return your email uh, and your phone calls, you still get a failing grade with the clients. You've got to stay in, in communication with, uh, with the client. So I think in terms of, of, of what we offer is a, uh, a commitment to the clients. Uh, we try to hire people uh, that have a background and interest in, as I did, that that motivated me by growing up on the Texas-Mexican border. So uh, an interest in helping people from other countries. So if you look at our workforce, it's like a, a mini United Nations. We have people, uh, a high percentage of our workforce are uh, first generation, second generation immigrants themselves. And as a result, uh, we speak all the languages that you would expect, uh, Spanish, French, uh, Mandarin, Chinese, Vietnamese, certain uh, uh, Urdu uh, and other uh, Russian, other languages. So that's not really necessary, but it helps uh, facilitate uh, communication with clients and it makes them feel comfortable as well. Well, Charles, thank you so much. It sounds like, uh, although there's a dark cloud over the EB-5 world uh, today, uh, you see a bit of a, a, a light at the end of the tunnel. And we definitely thank you for all that you're doing uh, to continue to build the industry and to guide it um, on its path to success. And would you say, last question, that the future of EB-5 is bright, brighter than ever, or um, has some uh, still has a way to go? I'm an optimist, Matt, so I have to say it's bright. I, we, we, we've obviously hit some bumps in the road, but I feel confident that they will be resolved. And uh, I am a, a political junkie, and I think if Congress were to look at this in the proper fashion, the EB-5 program could be tweaked to actually uh, to serve even broader interests. For example, over uh, I've talked to Senator Cornyn and others saying, why not have more numbers uh, for investors who invest in uh, in areas that have been devastated by national disasters, by hurricanes. Uh, think of Houston after Harvey, or think of Puerto Rico after those, uh, all the destruction. And people had to rebuild. Uh, you had to encourage companies to come back. Why not have more numbers that would be incentivize developers to go into those areas to, to invest after a national uh, natural disaster? There, there's a lot of ways the EB-5 program could be tweaked to, uh, to help both the investor and our country. Well, it, it sounds like there's still some innovative ideas for the program that you've got. And I hope you continue to work with legislators and with industry leaders like yourself to, to make that happen. Thank you so much, Charles. My pleasure, Matt. You have a good day. Have a great day. That's a wrap. Charles Foster and other EB-5 superheroes like him are the industry's best and brightest who are flying onward and upward to bring out the best in EB-5. Join me on the next episode to meet the next EB-5 superhero. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the EB-5 Superheroes podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating, and share the podcast with the good guys and good gals who believe in EB-5 and the American dream. 
to access today's show notes, ask Matt a question, or suggest an EB5 superhero to be featured on the show, visit eb5superheroes.com.